Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Willem and myself, we are discussing access to public contracts for citizens' initiatives and social enterprises, as well as how to conference. Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hi, Willem. <laughs> hey, Marta. How are you? I'm excellent. It's nice to be back. I feel like we've we've had a little hiata with the start of the academic year, but we're back. We are back, but that's also because we're secretly working on something. Did, did we? Did we not yet saying something? Right? We're teasing with this episode, yeah, or maybe exactly. actually when that the episode comes out, it actually is out. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? We never know if we're like ahead of ourselves or we're delayed <laughs> and behind. And I don't know. It's just that's the, very true. That's very true. Such such is life, I suppose. Great. Well, what is that we're doing today? Today we have as our main course access to public contract for citizens initiatives. Very exciting topic. Then Willem will uh, guide us through. And for our dessert, we're going to talk about how to conference. And the how to conference is also a little bit inspired by the fact that um, we, I want to say post-COVID, very shyly. But what I mean by that is that I actually had a chance to go back and experience a little bit this great atmosphere of in-person conference and event that ultimately spring all this idea of us doing this podcast. So I think it's a really nice moment to discuss all of this. So I hope that the listeners will will, um, equally as, as us enjoy themselves. So access to public contracts for citizens' initiatives and social enterprise. Willem, guide us a little bit through where that idea of doing podcasts on this specific subject um, came to your mind from. Yeah, so I generally like doing, or at least ideas for research pop up when I see, well, I wouldn't say problems always, but like at least see frustrated people, entities on the market, public authorities that want to achieve certain objectives and they can't, you know, real, real life issues. And it was at a, an event in 2015 that I was part of a, a citizen's initiative that wanted to take care of their local park and do the maintenance themselves. But the municipality had contracted it out to a small enterprise from a local entity that uh, also operated in, that, in the borders of that municipality. And there was a clear clash that happened between this, these citizens that wanted to take care of their own environment, that wanted to be responsible for their own living environment, um, and a public tender that was running, and that they didn't actually feel like they were a part of. They didn't feel like under, an undertaking or an economic operator. They just wanted to be involved and take responsibility. And So do you uh, think that the clash comes from not feeling like the job is being done the right way and that's where the, so to speak, citizen uh, initiatives come in or it rather comes from this idea or this starting point of uh, feeling responsibility, feeling engagement within your particular local area, et cetera, et cetera? I think both. I think it really depends on on the the type of initiatives. I mean, looking at Utrecht, where I live, uh, there's... 
sports societies that take care of the management of their sport accommodation themselves. There's um, a local uh, club for, we call them an SOS, good Dutch word, after mm-hmm. bestek, SOS can be a sec. Um, that actually is for um, the elderly, the elderly or people that feel lonely um, and they can go there and it's a place of with the, where they organize activities. But it can also be a lot more up, upscale. So think of student transport services, healthcare services that actually neighborhoods want to take care of themselves. And uh, because that re- they require funding um, and they require stimulation from the local government, um, often uh, discussions of, is this a public contract? Shouldn't we tender this uh, come up? And um, it, it's kind of like a, a, a tough situation because there's also everyone involved sees that it can be valuable perhaps for reasons of social inclusion, cohesion between citizens, um, but that there's also risks, perhaps, is how do you guarantee quality and how do you make mm. sure that these entities um, um, actually do what they promise uh, to do. And this, in the end, uh, sparked into a, um, or, or led to a research project that I did for the Ministry of the Interior and Kingdom Affairs in the Netherlands, um, and which also led to some research. And I thought it would be fun to just discuss that today um, because I think it's something that's not just happening in the Netherlands, but also I know of lots of citizens' initiatives in the Barcelona area, in the UK where, it's, where it originally came from, rooted in the Localism Act, but also in Belgium there's lots of discussion. So perhaps mm-hmm. we'll also see some um, some of our listeners that have, have, have experience with this uh, themselves. And perhaps we'll also taking a little bit of a step forward, we'll see some changes in the directive because of this bottom-up do democracy, participation democracy, as we call it in the, in the Netherlands. Um, uh, well, that's coming up and that might cause change. For sure. But I think that that also very nicely fits with, I don't want to say our, our overall um, approach to public procurement because it's not necessary that we always look into that but I think that that topic also very nicely fits with the sustainability approach right because I think this is very much coming back to to the roots so to speak right the the the, the social engagement the notion of taking care of your spaces and each other which I think in a, in a maybe indirect way it's very much connected with with a lot of the initiatives under the umbrella of sustainability. But I think yeah. so this is super interesting and I'm looking forward to hear more about about it from you. But before we actually dive into you know the 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 more specific clashes that you may have um when you're dealing with these under public procurement my first starting point that I I would want to ask you is actually so if we take the example that you said of park and that park always have been procured externally. Do you think that there is a space um, from practical, but also from theoretical perspective to decide that that's not anymore a public procurable contract, but that is rather going to be some type of, um, you know, um, citizenship initiative that, that will be... Um, uh, that will be subsidized in some sort of way, that will be supported by by the type of funding that is necessary to carry it out. The reason why I ask about it, and I might be slightly, um, you know, controversially trying to poke on some things, you, you for sure can guide me through it, is this notion whether... When we talking about when we start to talk about this social enterprises, this citizen initiatives, one of the first things that strike to my head is, well, but is it... Isn't the main difference also the reason why you do it? 
So, so you know, then you're not talking really about a pecuniary interest of a company to earn profits to do something, but it becomes something different. So, in other words, something that used to be under procurement directive, do you think in a practical and theoretical perspective can be taken out of it and can be sort of delivered in a different form? Or you might be in a way sort of bounded to, to procure this type of um, outcomes if it is to be outside, if it's not to stay in-house, right? Yeah, so I think it's, it's interesting you would raise this, uh, this issue because I think that relates to two perhaps, I think, difficulties from a legal perspective, but also just purely from a definition point of view is I think the first question that always pops up is, what are citizens' initiatives and what mm. are social enterprises and how do they differ from startups, scale-ups, small enterprises, micro-enterprises, medium-sized enterprises? And I'm, I'm, I'm making a lot of categories on purpose because I think the distinction between those are very, is very difficult to, to one guarantee but also to define. It's quite blurry, right? It's not very clear-cut. No, and particularly since we've had we have this romantic view of Silicon Valley type of startups with beanbags <laughs> and ping pong tables, where I'd always would love to work, but like, isn't that just a young enterprise that just started before we started calling it a startup, right? And before it came became cool to struggle mm. to set up your own business. So I think that is also something that I think we'll get back to when we talk about the law is. What are these entities actually? Um, and th the second point that you raised is like, shouldn't we see this or envision this in a different way, right? Are these, should we really see this as a, uh, a public authority contractor relate, uh, relationship or should there be room for variation? And I think that's an interesting point uh, because perhaps this is not even a new issue, right? Uh, when we talk about citizens taking control of their own environment, Um the Catholic Church or the church in general or religious institutions have done that for centuries, right? They've mm. filled in the gaps between where between government and society. Or institutions like the Red Cross, they, they actually also fit in the, into that scale of, of entities that I just um, showed. And when we look at this from a legal perspective, you could argue, I think, one, or at least you could, which has been argued in the Netherlands, is are these economic operators? And this is, I think, where these entities run into a very broad definition of what an economic operator is. Um, uh, profit doesn't matter, right? Whether they make it or not, their legal mm. form doesn't matter, whether, whether they're continuously active on the market, etc. So I think very quickly they become economic operators, even though they might not feel like one. Yeah. And secondly, um, this is, I think, a valid point you just raised. Um, what's the difference between a subsidy and a public contract, right? Much research has gone into it, but if I look at it from a Dutch point of view, very basically, a subsidy is, in terms of enforcement, is very different from a public contract. You already mentioned pecuniary interest. There's an obligation to perform the contract, whereas with subsidies, the domain difference in the Netherlands is made based on that distinction. Subsidies do not have an obligation to perform. Whereas what happens is a subsidy is given in the Netherlands and then a second contract is closed in which there are a lot of obligations, right? Mm. If you get this subsidy, you need to do this, this and this. There's a minimum of stuff that you need to do. And I think what happens then, then all of a sudden, because of that uh, agreement, it changes color. So it becomes a public contract. And then we're faced with hierarchy of law. Public procurement law is higher than Dutch national administrative law, which arranges subsidies. And we run into a, a public contract that's granted by a municipality 
to an economic operator and all of a sudden you've got a citizens initiative that goes well what just happened what's what just happened right um so i think that's those are at least preliminary questions one is there an economic operator Uh, i think often that's the case and two is there a public contract that's given and very often subsidies are granted that i think are in fact um a public contract Mm -hmm. meaning that there's an obligation to tender and then we run in I would say probably several of issues, right? From from different perspective. I, I imagine then then on the one hand side, you could really make a little a lot of parallels of considering such initiatives as startups, let's say, or the smallest of the companies. Because some of the challenge would be similar, right? This notion of, well, if you want to uh, participate in a bid, you need to have a certain economic standing. You need to you need to have a certain turnover and so on and so forth. And similarly, yeah. as it is for those really small companies, sometimes the entry point to procurement market can be very difficult because they cannot um, sort of provide this type of security. They cannot mitigate the risk of potentially contracting with them. I imagine this type of organization would have the same the same uh, issue right yeah for sure i mean that so a lot of the the questions that we're dealing with when it comes to stimulating citizens initiatives and social enterprises are very similar to small and medium-sized enterprises um so in a way we've already got a lot of backlog or not backlog we've got a lot of experience and knowledge out there that could also aid these uh these initiatives and social enterprises if governments decide they would want to stimulate them. And often that's the case, is that they, there is a, a desire to stimulate them, yet they run into uh, into public procurement law. And then often i found that, um, and this is, I suppose, a sad reality, is that citizens' initiatives just give up. They're like, this is too hard, too many administrative burdens, we don't understand, why do we have to participate in a tent? Right, but I think it's all, not just all grim and, 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 and terrible. So I think what we could do or at least in this podcast, is to discuss some some opportunities or yeah, possibilities how, how that could to... kind of happen, right? What you could do. So, what is your viewpoint? If I would say, well, but this is possible because we have, well, at least let me rephrase: this type of initiatives are possible. Specific type of this uh, this initiatives are possible because we do have Article Twenty, which is on reserved contracts. Right? It's not as general as cover all this type of social enterprises and citizens' initiatives, but it no. gives us a certain coverage. Do you think that that's enough, or is that providing with us with the answers that we need in context of of, of this type of initiatives, or it's quite limited? Uh, I, I think that's only covers a very small part of mm. the entities that we're talking about today. It's because, I mean, basically this rule of which used to be 50% and now is 30% of, say, long-term unemployed or any type of category that national law prescribes is still very limited, right? So all of the citizens' initiatives or social enterprises that are that I've been working with do not have that type of yeah. Do not uh, fulfill that personnel. Sort of they don't fulfill that yeah. criterion. Mm. So, in, except for the, sh- the, the 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 classic historically, um, uh, or at least the, the the sheltered workshops that have been present at many municipalities uh, in throughout Europe, uh, unless we look at those, but many of them don't fulfill the mold of reserved contracts. And the other reserve procedure for for social enterprises that it was introduced in two thousand and fourteen also doesn't really fit the mold because many don't have that hierarchical structure of employee involvement or uh, a horizontal organizational structure. So yes, they 
as a social enterprise, they fulfill the criterion of we we focus on a societal need, we reinvest profit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But because of the organization, often it doesn't fit. So in the Netherlands, that procedure has never been used before. Mm. Um, and I think that's already, I mean, I'd love to hear some of our listeners if they have, do have experience with it, but to a certain extent in the Netherlands, it hasn't really fulfilled its initial promise of, you know, becoming something that really helps social enterprises to become reserved, uh, to gain reserved contracts, because in the end they are different, right? So it makes sense to have some type of reserved competition for them, but if it's not being used, then one should question, yeah. I think, its effectiveness. And then for sure is a question of effectiveness of a provision if it becomes a little like a dead provision that is there, but it's not solving anyhow the problem. It's not really used, right? Yeah. But, okay, but my gut feeling also suggests to me that this type of initiatives, wouldn't they often be under the threshold? So potentially, shouldn't we have a little bit more flex? It also, of course, depends, right? Because some member states kind of really more or less take the same the same rules and provisions that are above the threshold also for contracts under or or slightly simplified but more or less same same but if we if, if we just assume that the um, discretion of member states here in that regards that if something first would would you agree with me that they usually or often will be under threshold and second of all is that helping us out or not really well I think in a way you've got two routes that you could go down. You could say we're going to take the uh, reserved contracts route mm -hmm. with those two procedures, but we just said, well, they don't offer much. Limited. You could also mm -hmm. perhaps apply the take-all exemption in Article 12 of the directive. Problem with that is that it involves or it requires the government to be heavily involved in terms of supervision and control, right, which goes against this whole bottom-up initiative type of thing. Practically, yeah. it's difficult because... A government would need to set up all these separate legal entities for every citizen's initiative that pops up. I don't think that's really a solution. So and also resources, right? To all sure. of it, which yeah, is a because all of it needs to be supervised. Yeah. Um, so and then the second route would be is to make the tender itself <clears throat> perhaps citizenship proof or social enterprise proof or friendly, right? <laughs> and this is where your your point of uh, is this even a question of like is this even an issue? And I think for off, often it's not, mm -hmm. uh, even though public authorities make it an issue or contracting authorities do so. And they, because they overestimate the amount of uh, the, the, high, the monetary value, right? So you end up under the thresholds. Now, say, like you're absolutely right. In some member states, there is still legislation, but still very limited, or at least in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. uh, a basic procedure based on equality and proportionality and transparency is already sufficient, right? So I think. Um, under 30,000 in the Netherlands can be directly awarded, which is already quite a lot of money. Um, not if you're thinking about maintaining a, a park of, of a, which is substantial, right? Then okay. you would end up above the threshold very quickly. So then mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. But like for small initiatives that... Just really ground roots one maybe, right? Also to gain exactly. experience on how you do also, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it does provide some leeway, um, but still we're looking at, you know, the most really small contracts that could help these initiatives or social enterprises. Um, and I think far more interesting, or at least is it because then the value rises a little bit, is to to, to reserve one lot uh, of the tender to, to a citizen's initiative. 
uh, which is also an option given by the directive. So one could say, look, if we have um, one big tender for maintenance of public parks and we reserve one for a citizen's initiative in a certain area, so we'll make a geographical distinction, we'll, we'll allot, say, that all the parks in Utrecht in the north, in the east, in the south, and in the west, and the east has a citizen's initiative and we'll reserve that, right? It can only be 80,000 and there's conditions that are assigned there. Uh, but that at least allows for some, again, for a bigger chunk of money to be assigned to a citizen's initiative. Well, let me just um, double check with you whether I understand correctly. So by reserving the lot, you mean that for that specific lot, only this type of citizenship initiatives could bid? No, you could just have a direct award. So if you look at Article 5, okay. Sub 10, so that, that would just be you... a direct award. Not a reserve procedure, but a direct award. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it would be then, but the value of it would be small. That's what you mean. Yeah, but at least bigger than 30,000. So it yeah. would be mm -hmm. 80,000, right? So okay. that's what the limit mm -hmm. of the directive uh, says. So, yeah. I mean, still, it's not the it's not Valhalla or or heaven in terms of finance, finance but it, it provides a little bit more than simply uh, a direct award of a small small contract. Um, but in the end, still, if you're looking at initiatives that do big stuff, and I think to a certain extent it makes sense, um, it's because also the bigger the contract, the bigger the public interest often is, right? So then quality also becomes an issue. So as much as I, on a personal level, really appreciate um, at the value of citizens' initiatives and social enterprises, it would also be nice if the the park is properly maintained or if the, the 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 sports hall or student transport is arranged according to certain standards quality you know, standards it's also interesting what you're saying from from slightly a different angle because you know i've been thinking a lot about um how ultimately if that is different procurement decisions but also different tasks of public authorities and, and, and local governments, how all those things are intertwined. Because again, it, it, we are talking about something that is not directly connected right now with buying things or mm -hmm. services. But another, you know, this this added societal value that you have in all of it is particularly if, if, if you consider yeah, involvement of um, particularly... Um, particular groups of society right so if that it's elderly if that is you know sort of troubled kids and and, and so on and so forth a different sort of societal value that you build around project like that um and and it is in a way also though connected with finances because what i'm what i'm trying to look more and more across these different initiatives and and procurement is did you pick up the bill one way or another right so it's not, you know, what you buy through procurement is one thing, but if you can at the same time do this thing, which has been referred to as, you know, politicization, pol yeah, using procurement for political reasons, which I'm, to be honest, not particularly fond of this sort of description. I rather like this instrumentalization because it rather mm -hmm. shows case that it's not about political views as such, but it's just, you know, sort of a general human improvement for everyone, right? Um, and and I, this is kind of interesting for me. What the, that is connected directly with the so, social enterprises and and the citizenship uh, initiatives. But at the same time, it's risky. I think that it's also fair for us, besides just sort of pointing out all this sort of 
positive aspects in development is also risky because, as we know, uh, procurement is very risk-averse. Um, you will not be dealing with, quote-unquote, professionals. No. And what are the consequences of that, right? Um, who holds the responsibility, how you deal with liabilities if suddenly the citizens decide, ah, that was fun for five minutes, but we no, don't really want to do it anymore, right? How you how you operate that within the commercial setting of of um, sort of procurement task? Yeah, and I think that's something um, also to give a little bit of a shout out to Esme Driessen, a, a PhD candidate at Leiden University. She's really working on this this topic. We work together on the public procurement side of things, but I think citizens' initiatives pose like a lot of uh, difficult. Uh, or they challenge laws, right? And they challenge, or they question at least, is it fit for purpose? And this is, uh, you're spot on. Also, liability is a very important thing, is what if they take over? Who's liable then if, uh, mm. if, if, if say, uh, uh, the pond is not maintained properly and a kid falls in, right? So, yeah. I mean, what happens then? And I think that's a very relevant uh, relevant uh, topic to <clears throat> topic to research. And I think the question then ultimately is also for public procurement professionals is, yeah, so how can we make this, it, say, under the thresholds doesn't provide you any options. One specific lot doesn't give you any answers. And then I think it's all about experimenting and thinking about what does it tend to look like from a citizen's initiative or a social enterprise perspective? Um does it work to have tender documents set up out of 200 pages? I mean, mm. they're out there, right? Sometimes for projects, rightly so, but very often they're just standard documents that get reproduced and aren't reconsidered, right? So I would say make the language accessible, mm. make it uh, accessible in terms of length. There's some really interesting uh, tenders that have been published also by my own university, Utrecht University, but also by cooperation UBIS of different ministries where they tender based on three A4. Yeah, and but yes, there are more explicit aspects, but that allows you to really participate as a as a citizens initiative or a social enterprise. But do you think then, just sort of to round up the conversation about uh, our main topic, uh, but do you think that we really need to anyhow approach designing the procurements, approaching the procurements for purposes of? Um, giving access to this type of initiatives um, anyhow differently than we are to approach it from perspective of, you know, startups, SMEs and so on. Because, you know, this SMEs, etc., that has been a fairly, I would say, kind of traditional issue and, and, and a lot of discussion has been for a long time right now around the topic. We have a promotion of SMEs also within the within the sort of yeah secondary objectives i guess we could consider that of the yeah. of the procurement directive some were mentioned in the in the residuals and the and the argument has been very much on on economic basis right saying look um majority of the european market are smes they employ more they provide tons of innovation etc cetera, etc cetera. so the very sort of uh, traditional standard respectable consideration under procurement. So I just wonder whether you think that all this applies equally. It's just a you know different shade of gray um, when we're talking about social enterprises and citizens' initiatives, or because of, or or are they just a totally different thing in a certain way that 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 also poses a different set of challenges? Um, well, I think. 
ultimately the questions are the same, but the mm -hmm. problem is bigger. Yeah. So we're not really talking about SMEs. We're talking about micro enterprises, right? Often mm -hmm. under 10 people that don't even feel like employees because there's perhaps not even a legal entity that's set up, right? So I would say anything that applies to SMEs, access to it for SMEs definitely also applies in at, and but multiply that by two three for citizens initiatives um that's i think one so many of the solutions so say functional contracting involving citizens in evaluation boards having them participate in say the execution as subcontractors all those type of things i mean they also apply for for smes but i think it's heightened so mm. even more important to and I think also in terms of support, right? So we're not talking about legal aspects, but perhaps it could be interest to really have a place where these entities could go, not based, not to help them write their tender, but really to explain how this works, right? So to have a place in a municipality where a citizen's initiative can knock on a door and say, look, I'd love to participate, and that you don't get an answer of, yeah, I mean, we have a public procurement law, so you're just going to have to sign up for the tender, just mm. wait until it comes around, right? I think that's, on the one hand, if you're trying to stimulate the participation of these entities in society, you also need to provide the proper backing to help yeah. them out with economic laws that perhaps, you know, put obstacles in the way. For sure. And of course, then there is also then a little bit of an issue of resources, right? You need to also have resources to that. There needs to be, again, I think as in a lot of things when it comes to spending public money, there needs to be this public interest and seeing the value in that, right? Yeah, but um, sure. to round this topic and very smoothly move to our dessert for today, one of the things that um, actually came out time and time again on this Sapiens um, weekly conference that, that I've been on, that, that I think I mentioned a little bit what Sapiens is in our previous podcast, um, was actually a lot about participation, Citizen participation, volunteers' participation in context of making different procurements more sustainable, how you're ensuring that different, you know, societal values are being transferred and, and how you include the right people to voice their opinions and their contributions. So I think that you're really a spot on, on, on again, a certain movement that is bubbling already some time, but I think it is very closely connected with, for sure, a certain, I don't want to say generational change because it makes us sound very old, but it's for sure that... Speak for um, yourself, uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. But for sure something, you know, that um, young people, uh, young academics entering uh, the, the arena are really inspiring. And that brings us to the dessert, which is how before, to cook Before we oh, get sorry. to dessert, yeah. I think also just to add one final thing, also linking up with what you just said, um, is I think what could be interesting also to see what happens. Um, and I promise I will get back to that. That's why I'm jumping in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at when we get new directives, um, I think it uh, there's at least something bubbling uh, when it comes to the reserve procedures and talking about what entities actually fall mm -hmm. under that. So if if any change would happen, I think it would be happening on those two procedures to change the definitions. I'm not saying that that's, that's an easy task, uh, but I think that's where the discussion will happen when we start talking about new directives, if we ever will, right, say 2026, I think, 27. Yeah, I think we will, but I think that um, 
it seems to be no appetite on that. So again, kind of slight digression to the <laughs> conferencing. <laughs> Sorry, let's go. To no, no, that. no, no. But it's like you—you you make a very good point. But just to answer that, to you, you know, we 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 spoke with um, representatives of commission during that event. And they kind of um, communicate quite clearly that there is just absolutely no political interest and appetite on doing that. Because one of the questions, of course, that has been popping out, I think every time did you have any event involving commission, which is what about the... the um, Directives. Yeah, what well, what about specific, specifically the enforcement di directives, right? Yeah. What specifically uh, with the revision of of those and because we, I think majority of people feel very clearly that those would need to be revised, the remedies directives. But it seems that there is no political interest. So to to conclude that, that I think that it's for sure super interesting to always reflect on the normative standpoints of how the law will be changing in the years to come. I think that we probably will need to wait for a bit. But maybe on national level, there will be some developments coming forward. But they, of course, need to be then still in line with the directives and treaties and so on, right? Yeah. But how to conference? Where that idea came, Dilvillem? Well, I, I think, um, I don't I don't know, maybe I should have a bit of expectation because <laughs> I don't have like a, a, a self-help guide to conferencing in academia. That's, I, that's not why I... That's something um, to be written. <laughs> that's a, something to be written. I don't know if I have ambitions to do so, but it actually, I thought about it mostly because conferences are happening again. And it made me uh, reflect on, yeah, it's very nice. It's actually super inspiring. It's also incredibly tiring, but I wouldn't say not as tiring as sitting behind a computer the whole day at a conference. Um, or I, So the, the reason why ultimately I thought maybe we could have a brief chat about it is I was interested to know why you go to conferences. Why um, I do conferences. Yeah, why you go to conferences. And I think it's interesting to talk about it because I think maybe it could also help change how we set up conferences and how we build them and how we can make them useful for um, for academics, right? Because, and maybe this is where it comes from, from perhaps a tiny bit of frustration, is that some events, I feel like, was that worth it? Uh, mm. Was it worth to come, right? To come, yeah. So yeah. I think then what I wanted to talk to you about is like, why do you go to a conference? And two, how could we make conferences more interesting or more valuable? How can they add more value in the end if that's necessary, right? I'm just posing the question. Um, uh, and that's something broader than just procurement, right? I think that happens all across academia. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. A very good question. A very good question. Why do I go to conference? I think different reasons across i would say that um some set of conferences particular these day in 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 my career are very much connected with the research projects that i have in place so um there is a couple of different fundings that i'm privileged and lucky to be part of and they have written events across so it's just part of the task it's a part of um, variety of my role of, you know, providing feedback to those 15 new PhDs that we have. And, and, and I take that role not only very seriously, but it gives me uh, tons of pleasure to do that and interact with those young, brilliant people. So, so that's a sort of today also one of the importance of it. Another is when I get invitation, you know, it's a, it's a form of disseminating my knowledge 
which also ensures that I don't write stuff that go, you know, to my desk or that I send to you and you <laughs> read and that's about that's about it. But hopefully, hopefully get some sort of exposure more. A big part is also networking. I'm not going to lie, but I think that the networking often gets a kind of bad rap because people imagine that this is just, you know, kind of us holidaying. Um, on the back of, if that is university and so on. But the networking means that new research projects are bring to life. Out of this conference, networking came probably, you know, one of my books on um, on life cycle costing. This this two huge horizon projects. Uh, Bestec is another initiative that ultimately sort of started. That's an, actually a nice one, that one. Right? It's another <laughs> sort of initiative that started ultimately of us sort of, again, on this post-conference dinner, having a glass of wine, talking about different interesting things. And the idea of Bestec came to life. Um, so, so yeah, so there are all, and sometimes it also can be that I've been reading someone's work for a long time. That was with the newest, one of the recent conference. I was reading, uh, Professor McCruden's work, you know, for years. And I just was really, really interested to finally sort of hear him in person and so on. So it's a variety of different reasons. Did I more or less cover the ones that you would heighten or uh, would yeah, you add no, some I, others? Actually, also? I think you've broadened my horizon in a certain way because I was thinking, I, I, so maybe I should have made it like a distinction between the type of conferences, right? Uh-huh. If it's, if they're, um, I think there's two conferences that I, I have, uh, that I, I'm starting to struggle a little bit with is one, it's the, 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 the workshop conference type of thing where that are purely set up to make people make deadlines. Uh-huh. I think that sometimes, particularly with edited volumes, like unless mm-hmm. there's a good substantive discussion that takes place, um, I, I, I don't really see the purpose of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one, it could be that, that they're useful uh, uh, to discuss chapters, interrelatedness, bigger, broader topics, of course, but very often it's more like we have an event, so you need to make sure there's something there, right? And then it's seen as like a milestone to... yeah. To get get a get a project to completion, but even more so, I find the the more classic traditional conferences that have a broader setup where you submit an abstract, you get to present, often organised by societies or universities. You end up in a in a panel, or you suggest a panel, and to be honest, the feedback is very limited. What do you really get out of it in the end? And I think, in a way, um, that's a shame because. It, if you use it to gather your thoughts and to write a paper, if you need it as a deadline, I don't really see the purpose of it. I, there's, I think there's more effective, less costly, less un- environmentally unfriendly things that could um, that could be done to overcome that. Um, so what, I, what I'm thinking is, why don't we organize more conferences where people sit down and talk, right? And really debate instead of mm. interesting presentation, but please do allow me to make a few remarks dot 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 my own research right yeah that happens too often still i think mm-hmm. uh so my thought would be is one can we set up more interactive conferences where people sit down there's a moderator uh and and, and people chat right and it doesn't need to be someone that's very senior it can be anyone from and i think that's what academia is all about right sharing thoughts writing them down but then coming to a discussion and i find that's often very lacking when you're in a panel that's rushed where people have three minutes to present two minutes for questions, right? Mm. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I find that happens too often. Well, I think to to your point, and I absolutely agree, but, you know, um, 
I think that the challenges and 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 I think that the, the the same challenge may exist if we would think about these other forms of you know more debating a voice. What would you suggesting? I think that the main challenge of all these events is um, organization and you as a speaker taking responsibility of your role as a speaker. Because I think to organize a really good conference, it takes a lot of time. You know, being through the the trials and error over the years, I would say that that if you really want to do it properly, um, it takes a lot of time. To be very honest, I don't think, I don't want to say something that is wrong, but I cannot remember anyone doing uh, planning for conference the way that I, for example, did, which is before the the agenda was set i had a zoom call or skype call with everyone then when i had panels i had another call with all my panelists you know to make sure that they don't repeat after each other the same thing yeah. that there is differentiation that they already uh, preliminary some somehow can highlight some cross points for discussion that highlight the notion that you need to be really strict on your time so we can really have a half an hour debate afterwards to, to really, you know, give you on the one hand side really time to showcase your viewpoints, but then really have a time to debate. And I think the challenge of that is that very often what happens is that the agenda is built on idea of oh, who I want to have on that conference by name. The people are submitting something that maybe they worked on or maybe they don't work on yet. Uh, God forbid that you also have some of those speakers that suddenly, instead of talking 20 minutes, talk 40 minutes. And then there is no time or for the other person presentation or, or you know, discussion of any time. So I think that that part is for sure a form that I think that if you accept an invitation you need to accept also responsibility and the work that comes with it. Not only the fact that you can, you know, fly or go to really cool place and meet fantastic people and have a really nice dinner, but also that that comes with with the role. Particularly also when it's, you know, young scholars. Yeah. Uh, one thing that always really rubs me the wrong way if you have a you know young scholar presenting on conferences and you can see that they visibly at times you know sort of stress and then the very important moment comes any questions and there are no questions it's like i think we all need to feel also responsible not just for young scholars but in general to give feedback if we have conferences so you know that's sort of my longer ramble on on the subject but i really also think that the suggestion that you make is um is really good from from perspective that it can really kind of very quickly drive through the most interesting elements of debate rather than having like this introductory remarks and which article for directive talks about this and that right that we kind of all know but I don't know if you kind of agree yeah no this. I totally agree and I think maybe we should just, I think my ideal conference would be is that people have read the papers beforehand and then you don't need these introductory comments right well, you just I, get a, straight down yeah. to business and um, and and also when you talk about feedback, and I'm not I'm not super skeptical or pessimistic. I love my life as an academic, and I enjoy mm-hmm. most of most conferences. Let me just say that. But I do think there's room for improvement. Oh, for sure, um, like everything. Because I think most of the time, if you if you ask me why do I conference, mm-hmm. if I look back at the work that I've done or uh, any of the papers that I've written, m- the most valuable feedback was given by people that I work with that look at the paper, that make comments in the sideline. 
That type of detail you do not find at a conference. But what does mm. a conference do? It allows you to network. So maybe that's the second point. And I, I think it's yeah. also right that you say that is, I don't know when that became a weird thing to say in academia, but it's, it's so important. I think that would be the main reason why I conference is to meet people, to get inspired by their work, to listen to them, to, to see if I could, would want to work with them or if they would want to work with me to kind of like build a bit of trust. Mm. Right. So I, I think that's and then you can get to the stage where they, you know, they, they really feedback, get, provide feedback on your work. So And I think that it's also a bit depending, you know, what level of feedback that is. Right. Because I think that is the one thing if you kind of. Yeah, I think that it's more general thoughts and ideas like the sort of bigger picture that you can get quite good feedback on on um, on the conference or workshop. Um or also something, I think, yeah, particularly, definitely, if you submitted paper and people actually read paper, like you can get quite good thing. Of course. But that's, yeah. that's also where some of those events, and I think your forum that is coming in November is actually structured that way, which is also you have one specific person or two specific people that are actually responsible for giving you a feedback as a presenter. Because those people actually kind of are uh, are asked to read what you submitted and give you a feedback, and I think combination of couple do those different things is a is a really good approach. But I think whoever you are, I think just a good rule of thumb is you go thumb is you going to a conference. One day you present, or maybe you present at some conference. Give to the speaker before you or during the day exactly the same thing what you would want, which is if something strikes your interest, give the feedback or criticism, give the feedback. And it doesn't need to be if you're shy or whatever, you don't need to do it in plenum. You can just come to someone, you know, during lunch or coffee break and say, hey, I thought, you know, that's interesting, but X, Y, and Z. And I think that's to make each other work um, improve, right? And for all of us to get a bit better. Yeah, I think in, in the end, um, I'm really, I feel very strongly about helping each other out, whether it's young researchers, senior researchers or whatever. I think uh, in the end, we'll, we won't get to this phase where we need to be in public procurement or broader than that, or public procurement law, where we can actually start solving things and fixing issues that we have that we face if we don't collaborate. And I think conferences are a great way of of creating spaces where one, we get one step further. like say this podcast is a miniature experiment. Mm. Every time we talk, I get new ideas. So oh, yeah, why not absolutely. set this up in a conference, right? So, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. Um, and because we're also running time, but I think one last thought of the on, on, on the subject matter that really struck me is, you know, this collaboration and all this different thing, I think it, I also, why I conference also kind of changed a little bit. I had really this aha moment um, in, in, in the last Sapiens event because I just realized that um, for longer time, you know, I was thinking, what's my contribution, broadly speaking? Am I actually changing something? And what that conference really gave me is this understanding that also hopefully what when when we old and gray, what our contribution is not necessarily... Again, speak for yourself, but yes. You're not yeah. getting old and gray? That's what you say? <laughs> Ever? I am I, I my, uh, in Australia they used to say I have strawberry blonde hair, which means that I have the privilege of not going gray. But yes, okay. keep going. You would just go bold. <laughs> oh, that's below the belt. I think we need to finish up this episode. Yeah, but my point being is just a mentorship, you know, like hopefully what you're going to um 
have as a as a legacy of your work as an academic is not necessarily the best book on procurement, but you know, I kind of will think that one day when I will be going on retirement and I will have that last uh, lecture, that I would really love to have people from all different places coming and saying, yeah, that person helped me out at some point in, in her career. And I think that conferences can be one of the places, also how approachable you are, how how excited you get about other people's work and so on and so forth. So that's just the last thing that I think, you know, conference is also a good moment to to strike new um, this work relationships and and yeah. yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing to end this episode with. Okay, great. Well, I thank you, Willem. This was the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. This was the Stack, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com. 